Section 17 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. The Carolingians, Successors of Charles, Part 1. 1. Louis the Pious and His Sons. 2. The Northmen. 3. Fall of the Carolingian Lines. It seemed as if, under Charles, the Franks were to be to the new world of Christendom what the Romans had been to the old world of heathendom. It seemed so. But before Charles died, he showed that he felt it was hardly to be, and that his image of the empire had been but his own personal achievement and was linked to his own character and life. Two forces opposed the continuation of his empire, and he recognized them both. The permanent conditions of nationality and the accidents of his own family. He saw that his dominion was made up of discordant elements, the German, the Gaul, and the Italian. The true German Frank of the East, the Frank of the Main and the Rhine, the Moselle and the Meuse, and the Romanizing Frank of the West, the Frank of Paris and Rouen, of Orléans and Tours, with the Romanized Celt of the South, of Bordeaux, Toulouse, and Lyon. Three sons, the sons of one of the earliest of his wives, Hildegard, had grown up in the companionship of his wars and had shared with him in his enterprises of conquest and rule. The eldest should succeed to his position by right of birth or by national choice was not the assumption of those days among the Franks. The ideas and precedents of the kingdom prescribed a division of the inheritance, and Charles accepted as, of course, the parting of his empire. His one care was that it should be a peaceable one, but he never seems to have thought of keeping it together as he had held it in one hand. Eight years before his death, in order to avert discord and quarrel between his sons, he made a solemn act of partition in 806. Charles, the eldest, was to rule in the north over the old kingdom of the Franks, from the Elbe to the Loire, Neustria and Austrasia, and the German lands beyond the Rhine, with North Burgundy, the Valley of the Rhone, and Aosta, one of the southern keys of the Alps. Pippin II had the east and southeast, Bavaria and Italy, which is also Lombardy, with the southern banks of the Danube, and up to the sources of the Rhine. Louis had the south, Aquitaine and Gascony, the Spanish March, Provence, and southern Burgundy, and the valleys of the western Alps, Savoy, Maurienne, and Tarentaise. To each, that each, it was said, might aid the other, really that each might have his own access to Italy and Rome, was assigned his own pass over the Alps, to Charles by the St. Bernard, to Pippin by Coua and the Septimer, to Louis by the Montsenis and Souza. The contingency of the death of any of them was provided for, and rules were carefully laid down for the questions which, in the existing state of society, were the most usual causes or pretexts of quarrels. In making this arrangement, Charles must have acknowledged to himself that the great achievement of his own life was not likely, except from unforeseen chances, to be repeated, and that he was in truth founding three great and separate kingdoms for which all that he could do was to try and keep them allied and at peace. Yet he might have thought, 
that the Germans in the great race of Franks were henceforth to lead the world. But none of these things were to be, not even peace in his family. In the few years between the act of partition and his death, two of the three sons among whom he had so carefully divided his realms had died, and left their claims to be a source of endless strife, feud, and war to a younger generation. And that leadership of the Germans during the last three centuries, which seemed secured to them by the revived empire, was by the results of the policy of the greatest of German leaders, finally checked and abolished. By the destruction of the Lombard, which meant a Teutonic ascendancy in Italy, by the decisive separation of the Western Frank kingdom from the Eastern Franks, and by the creation of a great Italian power in the reconstructed papacy, the independence, and then the preponderance and triumph of Latin influences in southern Europe was made sure. Charles aspired to put his Germans at the head of the rising civilization of the West, but they were still too rude for the task, and exactly as his own efforts to awaken a desire for order and cultivation were successful, it was felt that not force, but trained and experienced reason, not the gifts which had made the Germans irresistible, but those which were the inheritance of the weaker Latins, were the foundations of power and the guardians of peace, law, and hope in society. The wild world which Charles the Great had tried to tame broke out again into disorder under his son, Louis, named Pius, der Froma, le Debonair, the kindly and religious, as we should perhaps name him, the good. Charles's aim had been to create a strong central power, which, leaving each land with its own institutions and laws, should everywhere moderate and control, should enforce justice, should support religion and civilization, and should encourage learning. And he thought that he had done so by reviving the Roman Empire in the West and placing it among the Franks. Still holding the authority of emperor, Charles, as has been already said, toward the end of his reign in 806, following both imperial and Merovingian precedents, appointed three of his sons, Charles, Pippin, and Louis, to be kings under him, laying down provisions for maintaining the peace and unity of the one Frank empire. But his foresight was of no avail. Pippin in 810 and Charles in 811 both died before him. Then he devolved his imperial dignity by his own authority in 813, a year before his death, on Louis of Aquitaine, the survivor of his three kingly sons. Thus, at Charles' death in 814, Louis came at once into his father's place as emperor and was welcomed in it by the unanimous consent of the Franks. Two years after, he was crowned at Reims by the Pope Stephen V in 816. Louis followed his father's example by associating his eldest son Lothar as emperor with himself and by appointing his two other sons, Pippin and Louis, and his nephew Bernard, over the outlying portions of the empire, Aquitaine, Bavaria, and Italy, or, as it was sometimes called, Lombardy. For sixteen years all went on as in Charles's times. Louis, popular with his subjects, gentle-minded for the most part, a lover of mercy and justice, but also active and brave, 
sedulously followed in his father's footsteps in legislation and government. He was busy with reforms both in church and state. His ordinances swelled the capitularies. From all quarters ambassadors came to him with presents, proposals for peace, demands for assistance. From the Greeks, the Saracens, the Bulgarians, the Danes, the Eastern Slavs, the Popes. The old success attended for the most part the military expeditions of the Franks. An attempt to make Italy independent under young Bernard, his nephew, was at once and pitilessly suppressed in 817. Bernard's eyes were put out, and he died soon afterwards in 818. More formidable revolts in the borderlands beyond the Elbe, in the Slav countries beyond the Inn, on the Drava and the Sava, in Brittany, in Gascony, were vigorously met and put down. And yet, in the midst of his power and glory, Louis was mindful of the frailty of human greatness and the imperfection of human action. More than once his conscience smote him. At a great meeting at Attigny near Laon in 822, like the Emperor Theodosius, he voluntarily humbled himself before his assembled chiefs and bishops, publicly confessing his offenses against those whom, like his nephew Bernard, he had treated unjustly and cruelly. Thus, with a milder and purer character, Louis seemed to keep up the vigor of his father's rule and to have inherited his father's power and fortune. Never had the boundaries of the empire been so extended or its authority appeared so commanding. Without his father's faults, he had reached to more than even his father's greatness. But it was the illusion of only sixteen years. It was true that he had not his father's faults, but it was proved at last that he had not his father's strength. The show of prosperity and success during the first half of his reign was in the latter half to end in gloomy and hopeless confusion. The explosion came at last. Louis left a widower in 818, married in the following year, 819, the fair and ambitious Bavarian Judith, the daughter of Welf, Count of Altorf, on the Lake of Lucerne, the ancestor of many famous lines, among them those of Este, of the Guelphs of Bavaria and Saxony, of the Plantagenets, of the House of Brunswick. In 823, she bore a son named after the great Emperor Charles, and to be distinguished from him afterwards as Charles the Bald. This roused at once the jealousy of the emperor's first family, the three sons who shared his government. The empire was henceforth filled with their intrigues and revolts. Their counsellors and partisans, the turbulent nobles of their kingdoms, threw themselves into the quarrel with rancor, and the attacks on the Empress Judith have been compared to the insults of the revolutionary parties in Paris against Marie Antoinette. The emperor was bent on carving out a kingdom for his youngest and favorite son, but the partition between the elder sons was regarded by them as final, and whatever was given to Charles must be given at their expense. In 829 the emperor took from the portion of one of them, Louis the German, Alemannia, Raetia, and Burgundy beyond the Jura, corresponding roughly to Schwabia and Switzerland, and created it into a kingdom for Charles, a child of six years old. From that time, the empire of Charles the Great began to break up. 
In the following year, 830, the elder sons with Lothar, his father's trusted associate in the empire, at their head, set up in Paris the standard of revolt. Louis was surprised by his sons and together with the empress was imprisoned, threatened, ill-treated. He was restored as suddenly, for the brothers distrusted one another, and the feeling was strong for the emperor in the eastern and German provinces. His rebellious sons were lightly punished, and again they rose up against him. This time they had won over the pope, Gregory the Fourth, to their side, and he accompanied their united armies against their father in 833. The two hosts for several days faced each other on the plains of Elsass near Colmar. Neither side would attack, but communications freely passed between them, the Pope offering himself as mediator. The end was that the Emperor's adherents were persuaded to desert him. His army broke up without fighting. Bishops and counts passed over, one after another, to his sons, and he was left with the Empress and her son at the mercy of the rebels. The name of this long-remembered scene of treachery was changed from the Rotfeld to the Lügenfeld, Campus Mendacii, the Field of Lies, 833. The sons endeavored to force their father to abdicate, but he was resolute in his refusal. They imprisoned him in the monastery of St. Medard near Soissons. At length, in an assembly of bishops and nobles, he was formally deposed. But the sentence had scarcely been pronounced before the reaction began. The brothers, as usual, quarreled. As before, the Germans of the eastern provinces were ready to support him, though they had deserted him at the Lügenfeld. Once more, Louis was released, his deposition cancelled, and he was again emperor. Once more, he forgave and made peace with his rebellious sons. But confidence and quiet were not restored. Partition after partition, ten are counted during his reign, showed the emperor's unscrupulous eagerness to increase the share of his youngest son. He added to Alemannia, Neustria, and on Pippin's death, Aquitaine. Father was still in arms against son and brother against brother. The empire, so prosperous while united, began to suffer from external attacks. Northmen and Slavs became more troublesome and audacious. At length, still victorious, but victorious over his own children, with a threatening future and amid natural calamities importance, Louis the Pious, the Kindly, died in one of his palaces on the Rhine on June twentieth, 840, and was buried at Metz, leaving discord among his sons and his great heritage shaken and in confusion. The last ten years of Louis's empire had made it clear that the power to govern its turbulent elements had departed with its founder and from this time, from 830 to 840, the artificial force which had kept it together being removed, the contrast and opposition between its great national divisions became more and more distinct and sharp. The process of disintegration began, and it was probably in the nature of things inevitable. But it was greatly helped forward by violent and incurable dissensions between the brothers and their children to whom Louis had left his empire. Lothar the eldest, his associate in the empire and already crowned at Rome, ambitious, cunning, unscrupulous, claimed for himself the whole imperial inheritance and the supremacy which his father and grandfather had held. 
he was the centre of the old Frank interest, the local Frank allegiance, the old Frank claims to rule. He held the north, the Rhine, and Italy. He was master at once of Aachen, or Aix-la-Chapelle, and of Rome, the capitals of the new and the old empire. But in the east and west, German Bavaria and Latin Aquitaine, always impatient of Frank supremacy, had each now their own king, sons like Lothar of the late emperor. In Bavaria and the neighboring lands, Louis named the German had been able to defy his father. His power and influence had become strongly rooted. In the west, Charles the Bald, though his claims in Aquitaine were disputed by a cousin, was gradually becoming formidable in the countries between the Loire, the Seine, and the Rhone. The trial of strength in such conditions could not fail to come. There was the usual prelude, like as of feints in a game, of treacherous negotiations and feeble conflicts. At length, Louis the German and Charles, with the Latinized forces of the West, united in earnest against their elder brother. The bloody battle of Fontenoy, or Fontenoy, Fontenetum, near Auxerre, a year after their father's death, June 25, 841, a battle famous in those days for the fierceness of the fighting and for the greatness of the slaughter, ended in the overthrow of Lothar, and made it clear that his brothers could hold their own against him. The Battle of Fontenoy was the decisive proof that the unity of Frank dominion shaken under the Emperor Louis was hopeless under the Emperor Lothar. The two brothers, Louis and Charles, with more steadiness than was then usual, maintained their alliance and confirmed it the following year in 844 by the memorable Oath of Strasbourg, taken by themselves and their two armies, by Louis's army in German, Toidiska, Deutsch, by Charles in Roman, Romana, a language no longer Latin, but not yet French. The result of their success was at length acknowledged and sanctioned by the Treaty of Verdun, 843, the most important and substantially permanent of the numberless partitions which had been and were to be, for it was the starting point of the new arrangement of Western Europe, following on the dissolution of the fabric which the great Charles had built up. Changes, redistributions, subdivisions, unions of the most varied kinds were still to be attempted. But henceforth, the broad lines of division were traced, which the subsequent history of Europe, in spite of all attempts to obliterate them, have only deepened. End of section 17.